Hi, this is Damon Pistolka, host of the Faces of Business, where I talk with interesting people sharing life and business experiences to entertain, engage, build community, and provide information to help others succeed. If you're interested in learning more about one of our guests or how we are helping business owners generate wealth and build businesses they can sell or succeed at Exit Your Way, you can find more information on our website, ExitYourWay.com, or by contacting me directly, Damon at ExitYourWay.com. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone, welcome once again to the Faces of Business. I am so excited I'm talking fast. I even know I'm talking fast. I'm so excited because today with me, we're going to be talking about, well, and the title just tongue-tied me. It's all about connection. And with me today, I've got Michelle Johnston, uh, the Gaston Chair of Business, Loyola University, author, just released The Seismic Sift of Leadership. Thanks so much for being here today, Michelle. Oh, Damon, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation. Oh, this is going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Uh, you know, so let's just jump right into it. Now, you've been the Gaston Chair uh, of Business at Loyola University for a while, and you've also been an executive coach, a coach. So tell us a little bit about your background so we can kind of start there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I was in graduate school in my master's program at Auburn, I had no desire to be a professor. I was recruited by a consulting firm. One of my professors was a president of consulting firm here in New Orleans, and he offered me an internship. And I came down and loved it. Absolutely loved it. I was conducting training at all these different companies on communication, presentation skills, meeting management, listening, loved it. And then they said, you are so young because I was 23. They said, if you really want to be a good management consultant, you need to get a PhD. So I went to get my PhD at LSU and came back to New Orleans and was finishing my dissertation, continuing to work at the consulting firm. And I was teaching at night. I don't, I mean, Damon, I look back, I don't know how I had, how I had yeah. energy, right? Like yeah. working all day, teaching at night, writing the dissertation on the weekends. And I was teaching hmm. a course, business communication at Loyola. And the dean at the time was named Pat O'Brien. And there's some irony there. If anyone knows the best, one of the most famous bars in New Orleans is called Pat O'Brien's. And he brought me to his office. He said, I want to offer you a full-time job as a professor. I said, what? That's <laughs> cool. And that's how it all began. And so, you know, I was able to still do some consulting while, you know, having a two-day-a-week um, teaching job, yeah. having the summers off. And then it morphed into executive coaching when I saw the New Yorker article about Marshall Goldsmith. Very cool. Very cool. So what, what really, what do you like about, about the coaching? What really oh drives you? It's incredible because, you know, as, as a trainer, when I was in my twenties working for the consulting firm, I was a corporate trainer, right? So yeah. I was up in front of a lot of audience, helping groups, um, get better at whatever skill I was trying to teach. Executive coaching is you really get to form a relationship with a very high performing leader. And after you conduct the 360, then you've got this action plan and you get to be right there with them and, and moving them and moving the needle so that they're an even better ver version of themselves. And I find that really rewarding. Yeah, no doubt. 
no doubt. So this, I've always wondered this. So it's just, I've never even thought about asking this till now. So do you see a lot of patterns in, in executives and go, I see this almost every time. Damon, that's wild that you just asked that question because that is exactly why I wrote my book. Oh, okay. <laughs> I started, you know, the seismic shift refers to what I saw happening in the workplace. The leaders that were getting forced out mm-hmm. were the leaders who were so action and results oriented, which is why they kept getting promoted and the company yeah. owned them, right? And yet they got to a certain level and they had subscribed to a much more authoritarian, controlling, micromanagement leadership style. And although, I mean, Marshall Goldsmith, you know, wrote a New York Times bestselling author with the name, what got you here won't get you there. Yeah, yeah. And so I I was seeing that, that these skills that they thought, wait, but these work because I accomplished all these goals and I got promoted. And what are you trying to tell me? My leadership style isn't working anymore. And it wasn't. And that seismic shift we were seeing is, is leaders really in 2022, they've got to pivot and focus much more on personal meaningful connection and no longer subscribing to that authoritarian leadership style. That doesn't work. Yeah. That's interesting. So are you seeing, when you talk about that and you see that shift that was happening, you're seeing the people that were getting forced out. How many of them actually were able to, when you're working with people you're working with, people you know about, how many people are actually able to recognize that and make the change? Great question again, Damon. So what I've realized is that the people who the leaders that I was working with who ended up getting forced out, thankfully, two out of three were able to look at the data in the data books. And although they recognized that they weren't going to have the opportunity to be successful in their current organization. Yep. They had yep. lost the trust of their people. Yep. They at least had the data. And I followed up with them after they left these organizations that I was employed by. And they were able to pivot and make that switch to a less authoritarian style and more of a servant leadership style at their next job. Now, one of them that I worked with looked at the data. And this particular woman was an interim CEO of a distribution company. And yeah. she was at the age of retirement. So she looked at the data and said, you know what? But I was raised in that command and control. My mentors were command and control. It worked for them. That's what I know. I'm ready to retire. Peace out. And and so it really, it depends. And another thing that I've learned too, is if you as a leader have been operating in this particular way, and now you're, you're being told this is no longer effective. We have a different type of workforce. We really need to become much more servant leader, Right. If they are surrounded and they have a critical mass of high level leaders who support them and will give them the time, because usually it takes about a year and it's really about changing other people's perceptions, right? You can change your behavior for sure. And then you've got to change how other people perceive your, your brand, your reputation, your style. And that takes about a year. So you can survive in an organization, even if you've been told you really need to change your style, if you're surrounded by high level leaders who support you. If you don't have that critical mass of of leaders that you know that will give you the time to grow and evolve, you might want to look for a different opportunity. Yeah, that's something. And 
you know, I think back to when I was leading, leading companies, there was a time and I did turnarounds for a while. And then I, then I, then a couple of them I ran actually through a turnaround and then into the long-term growth beyond it. So we get them running, you know, get them profitable and running right and everything. And that with, when, as you're talking about this, I think back through my experience in that is it did take a more authoritarian approach in the initial phase of we have to do this right now because you really don't have a choice. But then as you get into the next phase of it, where you really want to develop the teams that are going to create a long-term successful business, you had to turn, you know, basically 180 from that point and get your team built so they could take over and do everything and had to be that servant leader. You're right. And talk about having to create trust in that atmosphere when you had been in the turnover, right? And so a lot of layoffs. Assuming a lot of a yeah. lot of cutting, right? Cost yeah. cutting, and so now all of a sudden you're like, okay, let me tell you, I care about you. Yeah, yeah. You, you really had to prove well, it. I, I will tell you, there's one thing I learned, and that if there's anybody listening to this that ever is in that situation, the thing that will that will break the trust more than anything is not because I did it five times. I was in the situation in five different companies, and and. Uh, you in the first round, you need to make sure that if you're going to make changes, you make them way deeper than you ever can imagine you'd ever need to do it. Because if you go back and you make one round of layoffs and you go, oh, that wasn't enough. You make another round of layoffs, you're done. You're, there is no trust anymore. But if you can go through and in one round, you make the changes so, and yes, there's going to be some good people that have to go and and it's it's just a lot and it's really heart-wrenching but when you can look people in a straight face and say you're going to be with us and you mean it and you know that's true or the business is going to be out of business then you're then you're in a much different position but if you go in round after round of layoffs it's it's over you you've lost it after the first one you got one chance after that and and the second one you're done if you have to do another one you're done you but. are so right. It's articulating after you make those deep cuts. It's articulating to the, the team. You are our core team. We're relying yep. on you. You're it. You're the high performers. Let's do this together. Let's yep. turn this company around together. So much of, I think, good leadership is about the language you use and about how you frame situations. And, and honestly, I don't think that you can over communicate. That's what I have found. You really can't over communicate. It takes, what, five times really as for a message to sink in. And a mm -hmm. lot of leaders think, well, I told them last month or I sent that email. And, you know, the only message that really is received or the only message that you can count on to be understood is the one that's received. How did they take it? You can't count on the fact that they opened up the email and read it. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, and so many leaders that I that I uh, work with are visionary leaders, right? So you look at a visionary leader and they expect to be able to tell somebody something and they understand what they're saying. Right. But we all want to say, we all don't want to look like we don't understand. And I'll say that me, you, everyone does that. Uh, but the, the, the leaders that I've seen that are really good at getting their, the message through will ask follow-up questions. If they, they're looking for those cues, they're looking for the cues and people of, do they really understand? Do I see in their eyes? Do they ask them a couple of questions and go to, to really 
bounce back. If you understand, ask a question about it and say, what do you think about this part of it or that to really get that, that feedback from that person you're talking to that they understand it. And visionaries lose that. They just lose it because they think I'm going to be able to go put this information out and everybody's going to go do what they need to do. And it doesn't happen like that. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And when I was a younger professor, I was self-conscious that I was really one of the very few in the College of Business uh, teaching what was referred to as soft skills, right? I was in charge of the business communication, the strategic communication, the leadership. And yet I knew in my head that they were the hardest. But I was young. And so I was a little self-conscious and I'm surrounded by all my colleagues who I really look up to. And they're the finance professors and the economics professors, the accounting professors. So I knew in my heart that if leaders created a positive team listening environment, which is exactly what you're referring to, creating a culture, I now call it a culture of connection, um, yeah. which broad overview of it. But if they create a positive team listening environment where their team members feel like they have the space to speak up, ask stupid questions, yep. not be judged about it, take risks, occasionally make mistakes, then I hypothesize those teams would make more money. And I wanted to show the link between the soft skills and the hard financial data. And so my colleague, Dr. Ken Reed and I, we went around and we found a KW Plastics, a manufacturing facility with multiple manufacturing facilities, and we collected data. Mm -hmm. And we were able to prove that the leaders who took the time and really embedded this, you know, open communication, open listening, the meetings where I value your feedback, tell me your input, transparency too. Here's how we did this last month. Here's what we can do better. What do you think? And then going back and saying, I wasn't able to use this idea, but I really was able to use this one. Those leaders had higher sales. And so we were able to link that listening, the soft skills of listening to hard financial data. And we were very excited, as you can imagine. No doubt. No doubt. Because it is it is really important. You, you said creating that culture of, of people being able to, uh, you know, ask questions, do the things. But really, I think that culture allows people to engage their minds, you know, because we, we, you know, we used to be 100 years ago. Businesses were driven by people engaging their bodies, their backs, their, their, their labor. Now it's so much more a minds. And when you can get their minds and their passion and everything into it, you get that extra level that you just don't get if you don't passion. have that. You are so right, Damon. Passion is everything. You know, the great resignation has taught us so much. Yeah. And yeah. The great, you know, reorganization, re um, prioritization, reevaluation mm -hmm. of everything that, that they thought they knew. And then they spent two years going, whoa, I don't know. Maybe I want more flexibility. Maybe I want more meaning. But one of the things that the real common theme is, is that people want to feel like they have a real purpose and they want to feel that they're seen, heard, valued and appreciated. And if you can actually be passionate about your job, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Marshall Goldsmith and I just did a podcast yesterday together and he, he was able to frame it really well, what we're, what we're both talking about, Damon. He said, well, now leaders are, are managing knowledge workers. So leaders cannot assume that they know more than their people do. Yeah. That's not necessarily the case. They have to mm -hmm. assume that they might know more than them and that's okay. And it's their job to motivate, to inspire, to articulate that vision and say, come on, I know you can work in so many different places, but this is really exciting and let's go. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're 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 right. <laughs> it's 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 cool what you're talking about because it is it is the real key to getting your your organization to do the very best they can. I mean, I always I, and I know this is bad, but I always relate things back to sports, right? Because when you look at sports and look at any professional sport, I don't care if it's tennis, I don't care if it's football, I don't care if baseball, it doesn't really matter. But the the really cool thing about professional sports is everybody is really good. Everybody has put in hundreds of thousands of hours to get as good as they are. There's there's really no physical, there are a little bit of physical anomalies once in a great while, but most of it is not physical anymore. It is mental. It is, it is how well the team works together, how well you engage with each other that are around you, how well the coach inspires them to do that little bit of extra that they wouldn't do uh, for someone else or they're doing because of the person beside them. And I just think that as we, we tr as, as businesses become more and more focused around knowledge and, and trying to get the entire person working in the business or doing their best in the business, not really even working, just doing their best in the business. This is so key. It just, oh, I agree. Oh, I love sports analogies. Don't apologize for that, Damon. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm so fortunate, you know, to be in the 100 coaches organization. So I'm on these Monday calls with, with people like Curtis Martin, you know, a former NFL star who now as an executive coach is trying to help other NFL retirees. Mm -hmm. And he, he really, he articulated it quite well. He said the high performing athletes, he said, it's, it's unnatural to do what they do. Yes. You would much rather sit on the sofa than mm -hmm. train all that they train. So they're the elite of the elite because everything is unnatural and they have to go in above and beyond. However, they get so much of their validation, the accolades from how other people are perceiving them that when they retire, it is tough because they're oh, no yeah. longer getting that, that, that enormous positive feedback. And so that's what he's, he tries to do to help them. Yes. Yes. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, about your book. So the seismic shift in, in leadership, uh, it just released recently. So when, when did you, was it in March six or weeks ago, February, six weeks, weeks, February, yeah, or not even six weeks, five weeks ago. Yes, yeah. and it's a so, bestseller. It's an Amazon bestseller. Oh, freaking awesome! That's cool. That's cool. That's cool. So good. So good. So the what inspired you to write this book? Yeah. So when I was an executive coach and I was seeing these leaders get pushed out when you know, growing up, that sort of style, that authoritarian command and control was very in vogue. And mm -hmm. guess what? I, I subscribe to it as well. I mean, when I was a brand new professor, I looked around and I targeted those professors who were getting faculty members of the year. And I asked them to be my mentors and we, they would take me out to lunch and they would tell me what to do. And it was all like a military drill sergeant. You know? yeah, yeah. Like they were like, you beat them down and then you build them back up. If they come in late, you slam the door, you kick them out. I mean, it was, and guess what? I thought that's what success looked like. And so 
I tried to be that person in the classroom and my evaluations would come back and they were low. They were below average. And I'd go to my dean and I'd say, I don't understand. And then he would sit me down and say the same thing. You've got to go in there and you've got to be so and lecture on hours. And and so that was that was the norm. And then all of a sudden, you know, years later, I realized that in order for me to be successful, I had to figure out and take the risk how to be authentic and to be myself and to take my strengths, which weren't necessarily what I was seeing around me in the College of Business. I was probably way too excited at 8 a.m. in the morning. You know, I was much more of a nurturer and a coach than I was an authoritarian um, style leader. But I finally took the risk and said, you know what, I think I got to figure out how to be me if I'm ever going to be successful. And hallelujah, Damon, it worked. And I was able to be successful. But then when I started coaching and I saw the same thing happening with my leaders that I was coaching, they also thought they had to be these other people. They couldn't really focus on the personal side of their employees, they had to keep that wall up and had to keep it professional. And they were one, you know, they brought their professional self to work. But then if somebody saw them in the grocery store, they were somebody else. That's that's just not effective anymore, particularly with the pandemic, right? We've seen it all. You've got to focus on each person on the individual level. So that was my big eureka. I realized that what I was seeing in the workplace also had happened to me. And I wanted to get the message out that that's no longer effective. And so it tr- my big aha moment was the leaders who were truly succeeding that I was watching. It was all about connection. And the leaders who were failing, what what appeared in the data books from conducting the 360 interviews, the data books told me those leaders had lost the trust of their teams. And of course, when you lose the trust of your team, you're no longer a leader. But I had to dig deeper and say, why were they losing the trust? And they were losing the trust, not just because they were disconnected and they had walls up. They were losing the trust because they weren't connected with themselves and had walls up. So connection, it just kind of, it was like a lightning bolt. I was hit by a lightning bolt. And I realized that today for successful, for leaders to be successful, you've got to be connected at three levels. It starts with that foundation of truly that self-awareness, the self-assessments, owning your story, giving up perfection, trying to be somebody you're not, just owning and getting comfortable in your own skin. So that connection with yourself is the foundation. And then when you have that, you don't have to have a wall up because perfection equals disconnection, right? So you're, you bring your full self to work. You actually show your people you care about them. And then you have the connection with your team. And then once you have both of those levels, then you have the connection with the organization and you have alignment. Right. And, and, and so I was able to interview Drew Brees and Juan Martin, the global president of Kind Bars, and, and really learn so much about because that's what I did. I had this big eureka, this lightning bolt, realized my theory. Yeah. And then I went and interviewed 18 leaders. And so what the Drew Brees' leadership in the locker room taught me is he was all about servant leadership. And he connected with himself. He really knew himself. And at the very beginning of training camp each year, he had a notebook and he brought the whole offensive team into the locker room. He said, I want to know your personal goals and I want you to I want to know your professional goals. I don't care if you think that you're just going to be on the practice squad or you're going to be traded or you're going to be cut, or you're going to be one of the all-stars. I care about each of you the same, and I care about your goals. Let me tell you what I'm going to work on this year personally as a husband, as a father, and I'm going to tell you what I want to work on professionally. Help me. 
and I'll help you. I thought that was super powerful. I mean, talk about meaningful connection, right? Huge. Yeah. And then the other example was a really good example was Juan Martin of the the global president of Kind Bars is Mars is a privately held company. And when they bought Kind Bars from Daniel Lubetsky, the founder, Mars, the family who's still very involved in this company, went and looked at all their global leaders to see which leader was truly connected with him or herself so that they could represent kindness. So they looked for a leader who really genuinely demonstrated kindness and they found it in Juan Martin. And he said he had had to do a lot of work on himself for years trying to make sure, because he grew up in Spain where it was much more in vogue to be macho, 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 and you were not supposed to lead with kindness. But when he finally working for, I think he was in charge of Europe and Africa, the pet food and the candy division, And when he finally gave himself permission, you know what? I can't do that anymore because that's not me. I'm going to lean in and I'm going to operate from a place of kindness. That's when the the board found him and said, you're our guy to be the global president of kind because he was able to demonstrate that. Yeah. Wow. That's that's it's something because you do see that in people now that that are that are the kind of leaders that really seem to connect with, with uh, their team, their organization, the people around them, they know themselves really well. And that's. Yes. Yes. And Damon, when I looked back and reflected, I think one of the reasons why I didn't spot it right away when I started working with some of the leaders is because I had been struggling with it too, right? I had been trying to be somebody who I wasn't thinking that's what success looked like. And so mm-hmm. it all is a journey, you know, and yeah. and if you think that, oh, if you're listening, the listeners right now, you're thinking, yeah. oh my gosh, Michelle and Damon are telling me that I've not been doing a good job. No, 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 no. It's just that there is a seismic shift. It's happening beneath our feet, but leaders should be evolving. You should be growing. You should be changing. And that's okay. You just want to be in an organization that, that celebrates that and is not trying to say, I want you to be something that you're not. Yeah. That's the big thing. Well, let's, let's be honest, 20 years ago in business, you were expected to come differently. And this, this is a seismic shift because you, you just, and, and today, when you look at it, it's exactly as you're saying, you have to know yourself. You have to show you're not perfect. You have to, you know, engage in a personal level with people. And for people myself, that was a hell of a change. It was a hell of a change to let people know that. Yeah. I, you know, I get down once in a while. I, I have, I'm not, I have trouble just like everyone else. I, you know, this, all these kind of things. And you were taught for so many years, like you said, it was beat into your head that, you know, you come to work, that's that you're professional, you and, and in even things like stupid things like Facebook 10 years ago, nobody knew I lived on Facebook because you couldn't do that. Now you're expected to be on, you know, people are expected to be able to find you on Facebook and Instagram. And And to learn more about you and your family. Yeah. And I still, as you can imagine, Damon, I still have leaders that I coach. I coach a bunch of CEOs who say, Michelle, I read your book. I know I'm supposed to meaningfully connect. I don't want to. (laughs) 
Yes. I want results. I need results. I don't have time to show my people to, because I, I, I really do. One of the easiest things you can do, particularly in this hybrid work environment, is just begin your meetings by asking a personal question. Just ask a question, you mm -hmm. know? And one of my leaders, she she said, Michelle, I, I did the typical on a scale of one to 10. How, how are you feeling personally, professionally? She said, I did that for one year of the pandemic. And that got really old fast, fast. So the second year, I just call it happy crappy. <laughs> she goes, we just begin every meeting with give me a happy, give me a crappy. And that seems to work. And so I try to tell my leaders, you know, if you want in this hybrid work environment, if you want your people on, on Zoom or in Teams to, to collaborate, you're going to have to embed more time for discussion, for those breakout groups, for, for your team to get to know one another and talk about things, not just business, so that they can have that psychological safety and that trust so that they can then collaborate and be innovative in order to drive financial performance. You just can't expect that it's going to happen organically over Zoom because it's not. Yeah, it, it's interesting you say that because I was talking to somebody about that last week and we we're creating about intentionally creating the water cooler time. Yes. And in the break time and things like that together. And I actually saw uh, my daughter worked well, she works for an engineering company and, and they were uh, they had it scheduled in where they just had we're on Zoom and we're just having lunch. And she thought that was kind of goofy. And I said, no, it's not because you're talking to people while you're eating. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they're talking to people and they're doing those kind of things because they're it's not there anymore. So that intentionality has to be brought back and you have to schedule the time. And it's, it's completely new because it happened organically before. You are absolutely right. And intention is the key word. And so I'm really telling the leaders that I coach that. First of all, they have to own their calendars, right? They have to own their operating rhythms. And so now they're going to have to if, if it's if it used to be a one hour team meeting and you could walk in. And as you're walking in, hey, how was your weekend? Or like you said, at the water cooler, all those interactions that happen. So you get to the meeting and you spend the hour going through the agenda. Well, now you really need to embed at least 10 minutes, 15 minutes in the beginning to go around and have that water cooler talk. How was your weekend? What are y'all doing? You know, um, and you can make it and you've got to as a leader, you've got to pick questions that reflect your personality. So say you are really trying to to move your team to be more innovative, then say, you know what, I'm going to begin by telling you about a twenty five million dollar mistake that I made because I want on to hear about your mistakes. We've got to get in the habit of recognizing that to be innovative, we're going to have to take risks and sometimes yeah. we're going to make mistakes. So I had one of the, the leaders that I coach, he's a CFO, and he got up on stage at a big leadership meeting because his big push was to be the most innovative company. I said, if you're going to ask your people to do that, you better start off with a big mistake that you made. And it was his $25 million mistake. Yes. That's that is that is so true that you need to you need to help people to, to see that you are willing to be there with them in yeah. those situations. Yeah. And just that, going back to perfection, Damon, what we were talking about yeah. earlier, what I found, too, is that the leaders who tried to be perfect themselves, didn't have a hair out of place, had the whitest teeth, the most polished shoes. You know those leaders, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I found when I would conduct focus groups is that they inadvertently 
created cultures of fear because they expected their people to be perfect. And then all of a sudden, their people, I mean, and, and th these were extreme examples, but I would see it on Zoom calls. These type of leaders would slap you down if you weren't prepared or if you made a mistake. And so then they stopped asking questions. They stopped yeah. taking risks. And so they cultures of fear are the opposite of cultures of innovation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting as you say that because you can see those people that are, that are I mean, not that, Hey, dressing great and looking good is awesome if that's what you want to do. But you can, it's intimidating and it does create the wrong, the wrong uh, environment if you let it. It's oh, absolutely. We have to embrace imperfection. One of the books that made the biggest differences in me and, and how I evolved as a leader was Brene Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection, because... <laughs> I'm a recovering perfectionist. Like I shared earlier, I wanted to me, I wanted to be successful. So I just tried to tried to act like what I thought perfect looked like. And I was not successful. Once I just said, I'm an imperfect person. Sometimes I mess up, but hey, let's do this together. I care about you. Then it clicked. Then it worked. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great, that's a great way to look at it. Cause you know, it's perfection is, is just, you're asking for craziness. That's all it is. It's going to drive yourself crazy. Say that again. I like that, Damon. You're just asking for craziness if you're expecting perfection because it's going to drive you crazy. It's going to drive you crazy. And it creates a lot of anxiety. Oh, God. Yeah. 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 Whether you made a mistake, sure you did. Just get over it. Hopefully it's a small one. You know, right. that's a, or just don't make the same mistake. Yeah. Yeah. If you do it over and over, that's not, that's, that's, that's your, that's on you for right. sure. But uh, no, so uh, this is great to get to talk about this because there, there are a couple of things that, that really struck out, struck me when I was, when I was doing this and, you know, start off with the, you have to be connected with yourself because that I think is one of the hardest things to really do. So, I mean, you're, you're taking people through the 360 assessments and even at that point, how many times do people see that and they go, Hey, this is you. And they go, Oh, uh, no, it's not. Well, yeah, sometimes I do think reading those 360 reports is one of the toughest things that a leader can do. At least that's what they share with me. I've heard of a lot of alcohol being imbibed on the nights that I deliver the reports to, to my leaders because it is tough to see how other people perceive your, your behavior because a lot of it, you're not intending for it to come across that way. One of the things that I have found is after the leader gets this data and says, whoa, there are some things that I can do to be even better, I do step back to help them connect with themselves and I have them own their stories. Yes. And I just gave a keynote today, a keynote luncheon, keynote speech, speech at a luncheon. And I actually had the, the people at the tables, you know, share with their partner, a significant life event that made them who they are today. I think that process of really owning your warts and all, this is where I'm from. This is kind of a significant life event. It was really hard, but it made me who I am today. And once you own it and you put it out there, then if you think about, you know, driving a, a car and you, you want to, as a leader, you want to accelerate. But I found that the leaders who were 
self-conscious about who they were or their background or something about themselves and they were trying to hide parts of themselves, they never could really push that accelerator as fast as they wanted until they put it in the rearview mirror and said, hey, this is me. This is where I come from. It's okay, warts and all. I'm good. And Kenneth Polite is in my book, and he's now second in command in the U.S. Department of Justice. He's in charge of the criminal division. He was our U.S. attorney here in New Orleans. And when I interviewed him for my book, I was fascinated because he grew up as poor as poor gets by two teenage parents that did not marry in housing projects in the lower ninth ward in New Orleans. And he says he just vividly remembers when he got a scholarship to a high school uptown, a private high school uptown right around the corner from me. And he would take bus after bus after bus. And then finally the streetcar along beautiful St. Charles Avenue and go to this high school. And yet he never pretended that he didn't, he never pretended that he didn't take the bus from the lower ninth ward in the projects. He's like, this is me. And he mm -hmm. said, Michelle, it's, it serves me so well. He said, I ended up at Harvard and yeah. I ended up at Harvard without a sweater. Thank gosh, the scholarship came with uh, money for warm clothes. I had never even yeah. visited Harvard, you know? He said, but I got there and I didn't try to be somebody I wasn't. I was like, this is me. I'm so grateful for being here. And he said it really helped him. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Like you said, it's it's owning yourself and being good with that so that you can, I, I think it really you have to be there so you can be good with others. Yes, exactly. I wrote in my book and it was such a risk. You know, academics typically don't self-disclose. Academic books are yeah. typically just all research. And, and I really, I just felt like I needed to share my story in the book so that other people could relate. And, and I had really hid things about my um, childhood because I was so self-conscious. I was a corporate brat. My father was really good at what he did with General Motors and the finance division. And back then, if you got promoted, you couldn't stay in your market and actually lead the people who were your peers. You had to get transferred. Yeah. And then if you wanted a corporate career with a big company like General Motors, you had to say yes. So we moved every two years. So I never felt like I, I knew where I was from. I would say, they would say, hey, Michelle, where are you from? I would say, I was born in Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, Washington, D.C. Cool, because people want to kind of put you in a box and figure you out. But I wasn't from there. I didn't grow. I mean, I was born there, but I didn't grow yeah. up there. And then I had lived in the north and I lived in the south and I and and people couldn't understand me. And I felt like I confused so many people that I just stopped talking about myself. If somebody said, where are you from? I would say, where are you from? And if they said Birmingham, Alabama, I'd say, oh, my parents live in Birmingham, Alabama. And I would make that connection and then I'd stop talking. And then they would think, oh, she's from Birmingham, Alabama. I was not from Birmingham, Alabama. And it took me a while to realize I wasn't making meaningful connections with people because I was so self-conscious. I didn't know what to say, you know? And so I had to work really hard at that of just kind of owning that and saying, you know what, it's okay. And, and then rehearsing how I would answer when somebody would say, where are you from? I'd say, oh, I'm a corporate brat. I, I moved around growing up just so that I could be real and not pretend that I was from somewhere that I really wasn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's something.
that's something and it's a great example i mean you we we all have those things and we just need to get we need to figure it out because it's gonna it's gonna hold us back if we don't we need to figure it out and and own it and give ourselves permission that it's okay and sometimes the stories that you have in your head need to be tweaked so some leaders that i've worked with they'll they'll be leading in this super aggressive way and I'll ask the story that they're telling themselves. And, and it's from way a long time ago. It's not current. For example, mm-hmm. there was a leader who was um, a divorced mother of three up in the Midwest. And the company called me and said, um, the president said, Michelle, we re- this, this woman really deserves to be in the C-suite. She's, her, her people don't necessarily like working with her. Can you help? And when I started talking with her, she was telling herself that, you know, she was scrappy and she had to do it all by herself and her people can do it all by herself. She worked nights and weekends and never called in sick. So they're going to work nights and weekends. And I said, whoa, 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 let's stop. That was your story from 15 years ago. Where are you now? She goes, oh my gosh, I'm engaged. My three daughters that I raised just all graduated from college. They're starting their new jobs. I said, Let's tweak that story that's going on in your head yeah, because it's yeah. really keeping you from interacting in a positive way with your people, you know? Mm-hmm. So sometimes your story needs tweaking. Yeah. That's great. That, I mean, just that, just the, to hear how you're talking to the people and helping them work through this is incredible because I, I, I can only imagine when you come back after people take this really process it and really start to live anew or, or project anew, as you're saying, and, and start to create model the behavior that will help to, to connect better with the people around them. I bet there's tremendous improvements in, in a, their happiness and b the working environment. Oh my gosh. Yes. I was, uh, I read an article in the New York times not too long ago, I think only about two months ago, um, that, that talked about Yale's most popular course in Yale's history is called the the hard science, I think the science of well-being. Mm-hmm. And it's so popular that a donor gave money to put it free on Coursera. So I took it. And because I was so intrigued, you know, how can we help these leaders even become happier and more mm-hmm. comfortable? And, and, and what what are the factors that drive well well well-being? And the number one factor that I found, at least in the three uh, sessions that I took, was uh, connection, true, meaningful connection with yourself and stop trying to be perfect and stop trying to be somebody that you're not. I just I just giggle when you say that, because I think back to, you know, how many years did we live where we had to be this separate person and even say it to ourselves, even say it to ourselves. That's that's home, Damon. This is work, Damon. You know, we would say people would say that. I had a leader recently um, that said, Michelle, I was thinking about having a cookout for my people now that everybody's working from home. We don't see each other. He said, but I was told in my former job that don't get that close with your people. Keep the keep the not the wall, but there is a demarcation. And I said that doesn't exist anymore. And if it's not whether it exists or not, it's not effective. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. So let's, let's talk a little bit about where you live just for a minute. Cause I, New Orleans, and we don't know, we talked about this before. It's, it's one of the favorite places that our family likes to visit once in a while. 
So, I mean, we, we've spent Thanksgiving there before, but people don't think of going to New Orleans for Thanksgiving. But when you live in the Northwest and it's rainy and cold, it's a lot better. So a couple New Orleans questions for you. So what's your favorite restaurant? So before I answer your questions, can I tell you something that I never thought would happen? What's that? I dedicated this book to the city of New Orleans. Awesome. And I dedicated it. I said to the city, this is this book is dedicated to the city of New Orleans where you don't have to be perfect. Because that's, I think, why this city resonated so much with me as a corporate child. You know, I'd mm -hmm. lived in so many different cities where I felt like you kind of ended up being a cookie cutter and you kind of all the people ended up looking alike and talking alike and acting alike. And then I got here and it so was not cool to be a cookie cutter of anybody. It was much cooler to be your own, right, um, your own individual with your own quirks. And this city accepted that. So I fell hard for New Orleans. So I just wanted to say that. So my favorite restaurant Right now, it's a newer, I mean, Galatoire's is for the whole experience to go on a, to Galatoire's on a Friday before a big holiday is like something. Have you ever done that, Damon? No, not Galatoire's. Oh, my no, gosh. Okay. That's one. That's one. Good, good. Uh, favorite place to visit in New Orleans? Just sightseeing. <laughs> My family, my dad and my brother and sister-in-law came in town just a couple weeks ago for the big book launch party and signing. Mm -hmm. And they live 12 hours away in South Carolina. And they came down and they, we had one day and they said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to take you to my favorite park, which is called Crescent Park. And it, and it cradles the Mississippi River and right along this neighborhood called Bayou, I mean, the Bywater, which is like super cool and hip. And mm -hmm. it's industrial park with art and you're right on the river and you have to look up at the river and you see cruise ships coming. That's one of my favorite things to do. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Cause I, I had to get a couple questions in there about it. It's a, it's a great place to be. And, and uh, we, we enjoy our time there. So what's, what's new. You've got the book launch now. I mean, do you have more books in the works? I mean, this, this I can't of... even imagine. Right. Damon. I mean, I thought that the hardest thing I ever did besides raise a fantastic daughter yeah. was writing a book. And then the hard part started once I turned in the book and then you have to promote it, right? Yes. That's really where the hard part starts. So I can't even imagine I'm writing another book. I am just enjoying the ride and I'm loving get, getting the message out there and just feeling like if, if, if there's one listener, you know, who's listening right now, who's going to work on, on owning their story or who's going to kind of give up perfection or who's going to say, you know what, I'm going to let go of that authoritarian style, then that makes me really happy. So I'm just enjoying this ride of getting the message out there and helping people. Awesome. Well said. Well said. Well, Michelle, thanks so much for being here today. It was, it was, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to get to talk to you. I'm so excited about the, the, your book, the seismic shift in leadership. I wish you all the best. And, and if you do decide to do another book, we'll have to talk again. Oh, I would love that. But yes, exactly. I mean, I'm sure I will for sure. And I'm just trying to live in the moment. Yeah. Oh, no. Enjoy, no, no. Right? Awesome. Awesome. Thanks Thank so much. You, man. Thank you so much. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in.
Yes. Wonderful. Thanks everyone for listening today. We will be back again next week uh, to talk with another interesting person in business. Thanks so much, everyone.